0: Well, it's the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Rebranded, a new look here in our studio. We're excited to be sitting down with some Cardinals alumni. I'm Brett McMillan, uh, and we're joined by, first off, we'll introduce you to our two members of our alumni relations staff, Joe Pfeiffer, our director of alumni relations. How's it going, Brett? It's going great, Joe. Always good to have you here. Larry State, he's our manager of alumni relations. Hi, Brett. Good to have you, Larry. And, of course, you know this man, uh, the mad Hungarian, Al Robosky. Al, thanks so much for just sitting down with us. It's great to have you here in the studio, and we're looking forward to talking through uh, your cardinal life. I was going to say baseball career, but it's much more than that at this point.
1: Well, thank you, Brett, and uh, I look forward to being associated with these two gentlemen on my uh, sides here. But, uh, you know, they're probably tough, probably the toughest interviewers I'm ever going to hear from. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, <laughs> You know, Brett, you said Cardinal life. I was just uh, thinking about this before we came down here. So you were drafted by the Cardinals in 1969, played eight years with us. And between then and now, I think is 52 years since you were drafted. Mm-hmm. And 45 of those 52 years, you have been either playing or broadcasting for the Cardinals. 45 out of the last 52 years. You've I been thought it was more of-
1: than that, but... Uh, no, I mean, it's been a blessing. i got to go back to when I was first drafted by the Cardinals, and uh, I was actually selected on the recommendation of Runt Marr. And if I'm not mistaken, he signed Bob Gibson. So he had a lot of stature with the ball club. But uh, I was playing semi-pro ball the summer before in '68 in Wichita, Kansas, And uh, I was, during the NBC tournament, uh, Runtmore offered me a Cardinal contract, and I said, I want to sign, but I want one more year of schooling, and then I'll sign. So he said he would recommend me to the Cardinals. They had a January draft back then, and uh, I think I'm the only player that ever was drafted in January that ever made it to the Cardinals. And uh, they did away with it. It was just a, a draft that was kind of trying to take people that had been drafted before but missed a draft or people that were kind of in between ages and and, uh, school years. So anyway, I was drafted number one by the the Cardinals, but I had to deal with a guy named Angel Figueroa. And Angel was really just getting his career started, so he had no leverage, no power. And his first offer to me was $2,000, no progressive bonus, no school. So obviously I said he wants to see me pitch, you know, and then, you know, he can reevaluate. Um, my standing I was, I was drafted out of high school by the Minnesota twins, but I didn't sign. And then I missed the next year draft. Uh, so I would have been 68 and then drafted in 69 in, in the January draft. But Angel did tell me, said, you know, we're very proud of the Cardinal organization. I want you to investigate it. I want you to see if you really want to be a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. And I did. And I said, and actually growing up in Southern California, I knew the Cardinals better than I knew, you know, probably only Dodgers and maybe the Giants I knew better. Um, but because of 64, 67, 68, I mean, they were, you know, household names to me and uh, quite familiar with the organization. Well, I did all this further investigation and I said, I want to be a Cardinal. Now, the problem was, is he made that one offer before the season and never made another offer to me. And uh, it was beginning of G- uh, June and there was a time limit, you know, where the Cardinals had rights to me before the June draft. And, uh, so that was deadline was, was that day. And, and my college coach says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to sign with the Cardinals, but they never came back to me. So he said, well, let me, let me call this scouting supervisor in the area and told me later that day that he was going to be at my house at nine o'clock. And I said, coach, if you got in that bar, why don't you come too?" And I ended up signing, um, and, you know, Angel wasn't allowed there in my house uh, from other reasons for, you know, during the course of that year. You know, it kind of turned me off a few times, but uh, I didn't really care. I had the opportunity and I was going to make the most of it.
0: You got up to, this, to the big leagues at 20, which we see a lot now guys not a lot but more than we used to you know nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, 21 and in 1970 you get here just about a year after you were drafted I imagine that had to have been kind of an eye-opening experience you had seen a lot of those world championship teams like you just referred to and then all of a sudden you're standing next to a lot of those guys that were big in those 60s teams
1: yeah it was it was interesting because once I did sign with the Cardinals the Cardinals did make an appearance out against the Dodgers, and they invited me out to the, to the game, and I actually sat in the game with Bing Devine, um, who was the general manager, George Sylvie, who was the scouting director, and they kind of glossed over this third person. And I was just, you know, Angel drove me to Dodger Stadium. He told me who I was going to meet, general manager of the Cardinals, player director, uh, development to the Cardinals, the farm director. Well, the other guy was a guy named Stan Musial. Uh, And, uh, you know, I probably was congenial to him and said hello to him like that, but all my attention was to the left and uh, really didn't realize who he was at that time. And obviously I knew who Stan Musial was, but I had just focused on those two names I wasn't familiar with. And um, I was very fortunate to have, you know uh, – I would say, a good relationship with Stan and, and had a lot of fun with he and Lil at, at different times.
0: I was asking you two guys about that actually the other day was Mr. Musial. I mean, I always want to know about him because I never had the chance to meet him. What well, you said, you know, he's very polite and we all hear those great stories. But what was he like for those of us who didn't get to meet him? You know, he loved people.
1: Um, he just absolutely loved people. He always kept, a, you know, a stack of his, his photograph and his a list of his accomplishments, which was quite lengthy, uh, would be in his coat pocket and he'd pass these all out. His autograph will never be worth what it should because he was so generous. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can remember uh, several different occasions. And one was on a Cardinal cruise where uh, Stan and, and Lil were on the cruise. And Lil at this point was, uh, uh, she would Use a cane or a walker at times during the day, but she would use the wheelchair at night and we came out of the main dinner, and uh, she wanted to go to the the main show after dinner, and Stan really didn't want to go, so I was walking her down with the wheelchair uh, to the event, the big theater, and Stan said, "I'll just you know get her seated, she'll be fine, she'll find me later and go do what you want to do and go fine. so I get lil. Situated, I get her seated, and I come back walking out, and I hear Stan walk into a, you know, another gallery, another area, uh, where there's a group of people, and said, "Hi, I'm Stan Musial. Can I sign autographs and play your, my harmonica to you?" And I mean, it was just oh, that's, that's the way he was with people, and he was just so gracious. And my wife was one, but countless hundreds of thousands of kids could tell you about. Um, meeting Stan Musial at Stan and Biggie's, you know, that he was present there all the time and they got those pictures from him. So he he loved people. Um, He was so generous. He was funny, but it was almost funnier to laugh at him laughing at his own jokes. You know, some of his jokes were corny, but he would laugh so hard that you couldn't, you couldn't help but get in that festive mood.
0: I've heard stories before, even like in South City when he and Lil were living and then they'd go back to Pennsylvania and work in the offseason. He'd play stickball in the street with the neighborhood kids or invite kids over for a barbecue. Or it just seemed like that was very much in his nature that he understood the moment, I guess. Uh, you know, you do a lot, of, a lot of alumni stuff. Is he the most booked alumni, Joe and Larry, at this point? I mean, he does a lot of events for us.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean— it- Al has been involved in some of what we could call our signature events. I mean, you were there at the uh, ground floor of getting fantasy camp started in the, in the form it's in now. Been involved with the schools program, um, you know, for how many years? A couple uh, decades. Yeah. Now. Um, and I wonder if you have any idea how many schools you visited over the years with that? How many kids? You know, 10,000? I don't
1: know. Oh, I mean, I mean you Got to be up there uh, at that point, but you know, once again, you know, when I did sign, um, I went right to the highest A league team, and I got a chance to play for Joe Cunningham. Mm-hmm. So Joe kind of was uh, an inspiration to me, but more so when he retired, you know, as, as managing and was in the front office, um, he really kind of steered me uh, into what might has become my vocation. You know, the broadcasting. Um, because he, he, you know, everybody's got a fear of speaking when you first start out. And Joe would always talk about, you know, out. you got to go to the Lions clubs. You got to go to Kiwanis clubs. You got to go to all these different places. Get, you know, they won't expect you to say anything. So just, you'll learn how to formulate words. I'm still not sure I learned them, but, uh. <laughs> Those are the spring <laughs> training locations for broadcasters. Right? Oh yeah. You know, and, and so it got me that situation where I started feeling feel comfortable. Um, and, uh, and then Joe you know, we got to the point where he was thought he was going to retire, and this was 20 years after he ultimately did, But or 20 years before. Um, he was worried about the school program, that if he retired, nobody would take it over. And I said, Joe, I've, I've seen the program. I believe in it. And think about this. You know, these young kids, they don't know me as a ball player. They're seeing me as a broadcaster. So hopefully they see me. That will reinforce the three messages we were sa- sending out. Or the fact that, you know, now you look at the ball players and their dads don't even know me, you know, are, are too young to have, you know, seen really my career. So, um, it's this has become my career, you know, being involved with the Cardinals and being involved in the broadcast, and uh, I can I can say I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I've never had a job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Go ahead,
3: go ahead, yeah, Joe. No, Brad, you were talking about Stan's influence, and it, it almost feels like that. His personality and the way he treated people has filtered throughout the organization for decades. Red was that way with people. Um, Lou was that way with people, and you—I mean—you had a special tie to Lou. I know he had a significant impact on you at the beginning of your career.
1: Too. You know, it was—it was a very uh, different relationship because he was—he was so kind to me. But it was also one of those situations where I didn't see him. You know, in the couple of years I'm in the American League, um, so I see him. After you know a couple of years, you know you you felt like you'd just been with him the the week before or the day before. Um, he was very influential in helping me evolve as as a person off the field. You know, Gibby was the guy that you know I locked into and emulate or try. You, how can you emulate? But some of his tenacity and some of the competitiveness, you know, those are things I could take from Gibby. Um, but Lou was you know gave me a lot of the refiner points about what to what is expected of a ball player off
0: the field. Somebody at Fantasy Camp, Larry, sorry to cut you off, was saying that Lou was tough as nails on the field, and I forget which one of the alumni it was, and I just thought that makes sense because he's a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest ever to do it, but I just can't compute that in my head that this <laughs> this man who is just, I mean, the picture of a gentleman, a prince of a man, and he was, you know, was a, a hard-sliding, tough ball player, uh, but I mean, I guess he had to have been.
1: Uh, there's no doubt about it, and I, I think it was McCarver who made the analogy, when Lou was 34 years of age and he stole the 118 bases, which is still the National League record, he um, He's equated that to a 10-year-old thoroughbred winning the Kentucky Derby. Mm -hmm. Um, Timmy always said that, you know, never saw Lou in the training room. Well, I saw Lou in the training room, but it was all preventative. And Gene Gieselman, our trainer at that time, gets a lot of credit for keeping Lou on the field. Um, But, you know, there was no fiercer slider in all of baseball. There were... You know, I played with Al McRae and, and George Brett. They were known for some of the roll blocks and taking out middle infielders. But Lou would start his slide within three or four feet. And, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I saw him go so hard into that bag, I thought that he was going to break his leg. Mm. And, uh, you know, he'd pop up and he was ready to go. But, you know, Lou on the field, uh, you know, don't ever take him lightly. And... It was fun. I loved going to New York or, or when we played the Mets and to see Jerry Grody and he Jerry Grody was the catcher of the Mets. Texan. So kind of had that Texas attitude, you know, I'm rough and tough. And Lou would just walk up to plate and say, Grody, I've got three against you today. I'm going to get you, Grody. And you could just see the veins popping and and, uh, and Grody's and and Lou would get us – you know, steel base and everything. And he'd just, he just, you know, no big deal, you know, but he'd come up the next time. I got one. I got a couple more coming your way. And, <laughs> and I mean, he was just, you know, he was just such a, a real person. And like, you know, we were talking about Ned camp, you know, that you never saw Lou Brock without a smile. Right. And, you know, when he, when he lost his leg, you know, it, you know, Dick Sitzman and I visited him in the hospital and, and, there he was. You know, I mean, he was having a ball with the therapists and, and joking around with the doctors and physical therapy people and just had that infectious smile. And, and, you know, we set the goal that he was going to be walking out at opening day. And, of course, he did.
3: And he and Jackie never met a stranger. Whether it was an autograph <laughs> session or a meet-and-greet or whatever, you know, a lot of times you'll see guys, their head down and move on. You know, the, Lou's autograph sessions would take two and three times the length of anybody else just because he's so incredibly kind.
1: It's unbelievable. Yeah, and, you know, that kind of goes back to the, the idea of, go, why would anybody want my autograph? You know, I mean, Lou Brock and Bob Gibson, you know, Stan and Red, you know, all the Aussie, uh, you know, all the, all the great Hall of Famers and everything. You can understand that. But so I've always felt like, you know, especially when I have to put the mad Hungarian, you know, it's, Al Rabaski's tough enough, but then sitting the mad Hungarian on top of it, you know, my line gets longer too. But then I'll sit there and I, it's easy. I want to talk to them, you know, and make them feel like what's sometimes we some of take tear off a little scrap of paper and you know, they aren't gonna keep that thing, but you know, if they ask you,
0: sign it. What would you have done if somebody walked up to the plate when you were playing and said, "I got three off you today, Raboski"? I don't, I don't think that would have gone well. I don't think for they them. would have got three at bats. I don't <laughs> know if they would be here with us today, Al. Oh, <laughs> well, there. <laughs> there
1: is that side of me, I got yeah. past that, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, those are the head games, you know. And when you try, and when you can get somebody to play that head game, boy, you, you're you've got them half defeated right there. So, you know. There's a, there were games that I played, and like I said, you know, I learned so much by just observing Bob Gibson. But you know what I also learned? Because back then, you know, the bullpens were right along the stands. You know, the fans were right over your shoulders. You heard everything they said. And when Gibson on the mound, people would say, you know, here's a money pitcher. If I had one game to win, I want Bob Gibson on the mound. You know, I remember people say, you know, I don't personally don't like him, but, you know, what a competitor, what a great athlete, and all those things. So, everything that they said, I said, you know, that's what I want somebody to say about me. Not that I could back it up or anything like that, but it just kind of gave me that extra incentive to go out there and to, uh, you know, have those things.
3: I think you backed it up. You almost won two Sun Young Awards for goodness sakes.
1: Yeah, but we we didn't, we didn't win as a team, you know, and that, that was the most frustrating thing, you know, because we did have good teams. There was so much parity in the National League East. Let me say, well, how could the Cardinals be in the East? Well, how could Atlanta and Cincinnati yeah. be in the West? <laughs> you know, but it was a, if it was a different game then. But um, you know, four or five games over 500 to win the division, and uh, we were tough. And we just the one thing I, I had great respect for Bing Divine, general manager, but he wouldn't leave a team in place. You know, if he didn't win, he was going to tinker. Mm-hmm. And I know at one time, you know, we felt like. If we would have had another year with Reg Smith, um, that would have gotten us over the hump. But you know, you know Dick Allen was here just a one year. You know, he hit thirty home runs, and I think he missed the last six weeks with a shoulder injury. Um, tremendous ball player. Yeah. There's, you know, I mean, I I get so frustrated when you know, the fantasy camp we celebrate the, the championships, which we should, <laughs> but everybody looks at the lost years of the seventies. But if if Gussie Bush did not trade Steve Carlton, Reggie, uh, um, excuse me, Jerry Royce, there's 450 career wins after they left the Cardinals. Right, two lefties with the two lefties, yeah. Right yeah, and and you know, and then you're not talking about Mike Torres. you know, you're talking about Freddie Norman, some of these other guys.
3: Um, it's true though when you look at the decade of the 70s some of the biggest names in Cardinals history live in that
0: decade Joe Torrey I mean you've got an MVP people completely forget about that and my, my generation is the one that's most guilty of it is you think about the 60s that won because there's those reunions you think about the 90s when the DeWitts came in and, and things started to come together for the 2000s you think about the 80s but everybody forgets I mean Gibson Brock Torrey I mean you guys had some significant talent on those 70s teams and it is undersold a little bit
1: yeah i mean it's 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 frustrating i think for us and and everything but uh unfortunately i'm losing some of my teammates but you know it it uh you know it's just one of those situations where we we didn't have enough um i think the brewery at that time was was more interested in selling beer which <laughs> but let's face it, that's their, their business. Um, and, and, you know, Gussie kind of treated it, uh, the ball club as a, as a hobby. Uh, so you didn't have, you know, the, not only the financial support that you do today, but you you know, it's a $1 billion industry at that mm-hmm. time. Now it's over $11 billion. So everything was relative. And, you know, people always say, you know, boy, isn't it a shame you're born when you're born? And I go, no, look how lucky I am. I wasn't born 20 or 30 years earlier mm. when guys were really taken advantage of. But, you know, I was making more money as a broadcaster than I ever thought I was going to make as a player. Mm. You know, because when I when I came up, you know, the minimum salary was $12,000. Just gone up from ten five. dollars um, The superstars were making 100000 And as a reliever, you were kind of a second-class citizen, so your ceiling was about 50. So you know, things uh, went—they went okay for Al.
0: Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas—the ultimate family vacation, the ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation, the ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation, the ultimate chillin by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. You have some moments that have to do with baseball, but maybe people remember because they were a little extracurricular. Some of those brawls that you would would get involved in or maybe would start uh, here in St. Louis. I wondered if you could walk us through a couple of those. The first one, September twenty second, 1974 against the Cubs. And I watched a video of this before I came down here. And on our YouTube version, we'll maybe try to roll some of that in. But uh, Bill Madlock is— Trying to basically break up your rhythm, the umpire puts it in play. You start firing home to Ted Simmons, and then take us from there. What what happened?
1: Well, I'm going to take you back a little bit uh, before that. Is Bill Madlock was the first hitter to ever step out on me, you know, which I expected some po- at some point this was going to happen, and. If it did happen, you know, all I had to do was reset, walk back behind the mound again and prepare myself. So when, when I came into that game in the eighth inning, and it was this tie game uh, here at Bush Stadium, Sunday afternoon, and uh, I, I really didn't have anything. You know, and I threw like I was just fortunate. I threw three line drive outs. You know, I mean, something just a rocket, but it was an out. So the start off the ninth inning. Madlock's the first hitter, four-time National League Bang champion. Never got a hit off me, and I was going to make sure that continued. But when I went back off the mound to kind of you know get some more adrenaline going and try to get myself in what I called my controlled hate mood, uh, and I got on the mound and and after I went back behind the. Uh, Back behind the mound came back on the mound and and he went goes to the on-deck circle well it's still a rule that once you get into the batter's box you cannot leave it without hitting a foul ball or asking permission from the umpire and uh, so when I got on the mound he retreated the on-deck circle and uh, Shag went after him Shag Crawford Jerry Crawford's father was the crew chief in the home plate umpire and he went to the on-deck circle and I assume he's saying, hey, stay in the batter's box. He has to pitch. Every time you step out, you know, and then we get this, this carousel going, this monkey business. So I don't know what Madlock said to him, but obviously uh, he didn't like it. So he kind of briskly walks back to home plate and signals me to pitch. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but when an umpire tells you to pitch and it's an automatic strike, I get a pretty good chance of getting this guy out, you know. So so I'm sitting there. I Fire strike, Teddy, you know, reaches up high and catches the ball. Strike one. Now Cardinal was the on-deck hitter, Jose Cardinal. He sees what's going on, so he jumps in the batter's box. Now Madlock realized what's going on. He jumps in the right side in the batter's box. And then Jim Marshall said, I got two of my best hitters against the mad Hungarian. They don't have a chance, so he stood on home plate. And uh, I one of my favorite pitchers is is uh, I've got a pitcher of of Shag in perfect position behind the plate. Simmons is reaching up like this and turning his head. Um, You know, Cardinal is trying to swing at the pitch, and Madlock's trying to swing at it, but get out of the way of Cardinal's backswing. (laughs) And Jim Marshall is frozen in the air, and the ball is going head high right across his toupee. His hat comes up. He's toupee. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know is, you know, there's chaos, and and Teddy just comes out of his stance and just pops Madlock, just hits Madlock, and all of a sudden, so now we got this ruckus, and I am look like a chicken with my head cut off because I run the home plate, kind of seeing if I can, you know, break this up here, and then breaks up over here, and I'm running back and forth, and I'm running back and forth, and I remember this, that you know, now they kind of got everything kind of squared away and everything. And I hear a very calming voice in my ear and somebody gently pulling me back. And it was two Cubs, but it was Rick Mundy that was saying you're having too good of a year. Don't do anything stupid. <laughs> and just, I mean, just way almost whispered it in my ear. It was like so calming and everything had broken, you know, had, had, died down at that point. So back then we didn't get thrown out of games. He didn't have fights. He didn't get thrown out of the game. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Madlock's hitting, Simmons is catching, you know, Shag's umpiring, I'm pitching, and but I had about a foot or two better of a fastball, you know, after that little adrenaline rush. <laughs> so, I mean, I I got out of the you know the top of the ninth, and and uh, all I remember is Simmons got a you know got the game winning hit as he normally did.
0: You said you had to had to do the routine again. So it's interesting that you brought that up when he stepped off, you had to go behind the mound, pound the glove, do the deal. So that was that was for you more so than to get in their head, is that accurate? Oh, totally. I mean, people,
1: you know, people thought it was, you know, I was a showman. Well, it all started out of failure and frustration because I was about to go back to the minor leagues. Um, I was the closer in 74 and I got off to a horrible start. And I was going through marital problems, going, through, yes, but I mean, I'd be out there in a safe situation and I didn't even know I was even in the ballpark. And, uh, Jack Buck came up to me one day and said, Simmons saved you. I go, what do you mean Simmons saved me? He goes, well, they were getting ready to send you back to the minor leagues when Jack knew everything, <laughs> sometimes more than reds coaches, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great interview, <laughs> but, uh, Jack said, you know, Teddy saved you. And, and I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, they're getting ready to send you out. And somebody asked Ted what's wrong with Al. And he goes, don't worry, he'll figure it out. So I knew I kind of had to to come up with something. And it was right around the all-star break. And as dumb as this is going to sound, it's the, it's the gospel truth. Um, I was on a float trip during the – and somehow I chipped a tooth. And I'm not a big fan of dentists. So, but I had to go to a dentist and have this tooth fix. So not that it was painful or anything, but my mind, it was painful. And I'm gripping the the handles of the the chair. And I started saying, I started thinking, what do I have to do to kind of get my concentration? And what I came up with was the walking off the back of the mound. So it was totally, totally done for myself. And I really didn't know how to describe what I was doing. And later that year, uh, Joe Torrey gave me a book or told me to get a book, you know, called Cyber Cybernetics. And in this book, it kind of described, it gave me a kind of a way of explaining what I was doing mentally. You know, I got into visualization. I got into, you know, um, visualization of seeing myself with a very herky-jerky motion, wind up, you know, a few little checkpoints. Uh, If I did this right, you know, ultimately the ball would come out of my hand the way I wanted it. And I would visualize myself doing this. And then I'd see myself throw a pitch. If I knew, you know, it's kind of hard to mess up a scouting report when you only have a fastball, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of difficult to, you know, they'd say, Oh, don't throw me any fastballs. And I said, well, you know, can he hit a great fastball? You know, and because that's all I'm going to throw him, you know, if I, if I threw a curveball, and it was a strike, it fooled the umpire, the hitter, and me. <laughs> and, of course, Teddy, too. But, you know, but you know, it, it just kind of gave me away. And then I think what one of the keys that I learned from Gibson was don't ever make an excuse. So I was going to accept the consequence. You know, if I did everything mentally and physically the way I wanted to make that pitch, I was going to accept the consequences. If I got a hitter out, I wasn't going to, you know— rah-rah or anything like that because, you know, I've got to go get the next guy out. Um, If a guy got a hit off me and I was doing through the ball where I wanted to throw it and he he beat me that day, I wasn't going to beat myself up because, all right, maybe it was flawed thinking, but I did what I wanted to do. Just gave me more revenge the next time I faced him. But, you know, um, that was a a real valuable lesson that I learned from Gibson. Mm -hmm.
0: Among many lessons, I'm sure, that yeah. many people across the game have learned such A lot of times influence.
1: it was, you know, rookies to be seen, not to be heard, shut the blankety-blank up. Yeah. I heard that a lot. Yeah,
3: but, <laughs> but you're talking about two Hall of Famers that had a major impact on you and Gibson and Simmons right there.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, um, so we had some great players, but mm-hmm. we just, you know, but it's called a team. Yeah. And we were just a little short. Mm-hmm.
0: So what about the other brawl, Uh, May 6th, 77? This one's a little different because you took one of those fastballs and plunked Cesar Cedeno from the Houston Astros in the ninth inning. So what was the background on that? (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be good because he chuckled before we even got going. Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, I still have repercussions from that fight because uh, that started my neck problems. But uh, um, in the course of that game, we were playing We were playing Houston, and Cedeno's a center fielder, and Cesar Geronimo was the right fielder. And I had played winter ball with Geronimo. And, you know, in the course of them throwing to the outfield, you know, um, for the inning, um, Cedeno overthrew a ball, and I'm sitting in the bullpen and it hit me, you know, and it, and it hit me in the arm and everything. So it didn't hurt. It, you know, it was one of those things where – it was just an an accident, but I looked out. I looked at Sedeno. I mean, not to Sedeno. I looked at Geronimo, and I pointed to him, said, <laughs> "You know, you know, just messing around, everything." Well, Sedeno was a little, you know, he was a little skeptical of of the mad Hungarian anyway. So <laughs> he interpreted that I was going to, you know, trying to hit him in the head. And I threw in to a lot of people and, and ball was up and in, hit him in the shoulder and he charged the mound. On my mind, I'm going to pick him up and body slam him. You know, I mean, I don't carry he weighs 200 pounds. I'm, I'm the mad Hungarian, you know. <laughs> so when I get to the point where I'm trying to pick him up, Simmons jumps on him from behind and my head ends up between his legs. <laughs> and for a second, I'm sure I tried to lift. And I remember, you know, when they broke up that fight, you know, I said something to say, I said, you know, my neck's killing me. He goes, you got us in this mess. You better get us out of it. You know, I said, okay. You know, I remember getting treatment for, um, you know, a couple of weeks. They didn't take x-rays. We didn't have anything that way. Um, and I would get, you know, my neck stretched with some kind of a medieval, uh, stretcher or something. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so it was fine, you know, after, after a couple of weeks, well, end up 20 years later i had no disc at three levels and and had bone spurs you know that were affecting my nerves in my hands and arms and and stuff so that three disc has turned into seven Mm -hmm. so i can't even look over here to joe because i can't turn my head (laughs) surgeries total now (laughs) since that uh, well, seven spine surgeries. I used to be six yeah. foot eight, Joe. You know,
3: <laughs> so the video doesn't yeah. lie, Al. We know better than that. But and baseball's so ironic, though, isn't it? That Cesar Cedano would then join us, yeah. in 1985 when Jack Clark gets hurt and had a huge, it hit over 400 yeah. on our team, yeah, winning the pennant
1: that year. Yeah, I mean, there were, and, and the reason I know um, that he th- that's how he interpreted it was because when I was playing with the Atlanta Braves in '82, uh, Bob Watson was on our team. And Bob Watson was, you know, a great player and and uh, former league president, mm-hmm. you know, National League president and stuff. And but uh, Bob was a, you know, a great individual. And he came up to me and he said, "Why did you tell Sedania you are going to hit him in the head?" And I said, "Oh, that's what he. That's mm-hmm. why he yeah. thought that, you know." But yeah, I, I mean, never had an issue with with Cedinho when he was here. And and like you said, you know, we're all thankful he he did come because he did hit it over 400 and do a tremendous job and help that team win the National League pennant.
0: You've had so many names that you've interacted with during your career. I mean, baseball career, broadcast career. So we think we want to close this way, just running some names past you. I mean, it can be a short answer. It can be something a little longer. It's a podcast. We love that about this forum. We can just kind of go where we want. But let's start with a name we've already entered into the discussion a little bit, Ted Simmons, who you said was a a big influence on your career in a lot of ways. But um, we're all happy for Ted getting the nod for the Hall of Fame. He's a great guy, but tell us something about Ted Simmons.
1: Well, Teddy, um, you know, is, is very interesting, very intelligent, and, uh, you know, just, you know, marvelous talent. I mean, he was as pure a hitter as there was in the 70s. Um, I've said many a time, and I think even benches even agreed with it, that Ted Simmons was a better hitter mm-hmm. than Johnny Bench. You know, now what Johnny Bench was the gold standard, you know for player for the catchers back then because he was tremendous defensive uh, catcher uh, and then he plays on world championship teams and he hits you know he hits home runs so that's really what's separating. but Teddy was a much much better hitter you know he was a pure hitter that we were going to see and you know in 75 I don't know if he hit 333 or 332 but he's a switch hitter that hits 333 one side and 332 the other side so you talk about consistency and as I said, a line drive hitter. So um, we had a big ballpark, too. You know, so, you know, we, Cincinnati was always a, a much smaller ballpark, a lot easier to hit the ball out and, and everything else. But Teddy was just a, a tremendous baseball player, tremendous hitter. I think Whitey, when he traded him, said, you know, if there was a DH in the National League, he'd still be playing today.
3: <laughs> you know, Whitey, Whitey says he knew he was handing the Brewers the
1: pennant. What yeah, I mean, well, and think about it, you know, uh, he had a tremendous relationship with Harry Dalton, uh, and he was the general manager of of Milwaukee at that time. And that's what baseball trades are supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a Lou Brock for Broleo. It's supposed to be a trade that helps both ball clubs.
0: Everybody's so, supposed w- to win. Yeah.
1: So what you know, what the Milwaukee gave to the Cardinals and what the Cardinals gave to Milwaukee is why they ended up in the World Series.
0: How about Ken Reitz? First million-dollar player in Cardinal history, right? You guys are, probably know that more than me, but what about the, the Zamboni? Uh,
1: <laughs> we have a, we, how many hours have we got? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell a story on, on Kenny because uh, Kenny, I, I love Kenny to death. I always worried about him, what he was going to do post-career, playing career, because he was such a kid. Um, he loved people, and he just you know you couldn't put him on a, a playground and ask him to supervise it because he'd be in the middle of that playing. But uh, I, I met Ken Reitz in 1969 in Instructional League, and he had just signed out of high school in the Bay Area. He was a a pudgy, you know, you wouldn't even believe it, but he was probably 200 pounds, mm. and the fact that he could hit but he could not field. <laughs> they had no position for him. You know, I, I th- think he's, you know, they try him at third base, they try him at catching, but try him all these different positions, you know? So I kind of lose track of him for a couple of years and I'm in the big leagues and we call up this Ken Reitz and they're saying, Oh, this guy is just the slickest fielder. And I go, no, you guys got it all <laughs> wrong. <laughs> you know, this guy could hit, you know? And, uh, but you know, Kenny was just one of those special people. We'd, several years we roomed in spring training when the teams all the players had to stay at the same little motel and uh, it was it wasn't uh the accommodations that the players have today you know this was the old motels which uh you know the window air conditioning and and um they keep the ball club there but then they'd sell the their adjoining rooms to regular people so you really had no privacy and everything else but one night, or, or every night, we, we were going to determine that we were going to make the team. We were going to make the team, so we were really, you know, busting our butt on the field. We're off the field. We're getting our rest. We're not going out. We're not doing anything. We're just, you know, going to make—we're going to be ball players this year. Well, every night we'd be asleep, and somebody would get off, like a kitchen crew or something, would get off, you know, at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning— and they'd rev up their motorcycle for like 20 minutes and, and wake <laughs> us up. So this one year when Rizzi and I realized we weren't going to make the team, we decided we were going to go drinking. And we go out and, and uh, we come back in. Rizzi had the car. And right in front of our motel room is a motorcycle. So I said, Rizzi, I wonder if that's that guy that, you know, Always he wakes us up every night. He goes, I'll get him. I'll get him. <laughs> he ran over the motorcycle, backed up, ran over it again, backed up, parked the car. He goes, let's go to the Nipah Hut. That was far in that, where the all the team executives stayed. You know, on the on, right in front of the Sunshine Skyway in St <laughs> Petersburg. And uh, so we go to the Nepa Hut, and we walk around the corner, and there's a motorcycle chained up. <laughs> didn't go, easy. You got the wrong motorcycle. <laughs> he goes, God. hang with them <laughs> Let's go to the Nepa Hut. <laughs> <laughs> we went to Nepa Hut. But, I mean, a, a dear friend, and, uh, you know, I, I think through the pandemic, um, I think it really took a toll on him because he probably didn't have the people around him that he needed, you know, just— you know, he had neighbors that were really good friends and stuff that way. So, whatever happened, you know, it was just uh, unfortunate because he was a special person.
3: And hopefully, his legacy continues. I know his son yeah. Brett his start started the Ken Reitz Foundation, Foundation. they're already doing some really good things. So, yeah,
1: that's
2: that's great.
0: Yeah. What about you guys? Well, I've got other names, but well, I don't. Well, yeah, you know, totally you were and, well, you
2: were teammates with in the '70s. Was when I was a kid and, and starting to become a Cardinals fan. And my favorite. Cardinals player when I was a kid was Bob Forsh.
1: Bob Forsh third on the all-time well fourth now, right? Yes. Wayno passed him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so fourth on the all-time. I mean, you know, another guy we lost way too soon. And mm-hmm. um, and uh uh Forsh- he was another kid I believe around the Sacramento area and a few years younger than myself also, but uh um I remember in that 1970 season um there was a a a there was a trading period after the July 31st, but there was another window in August, and uh, I was a young player, and and uh, I'd come up from dunwall worked you know played for uh, for Kenny Boyer there, the captain and what a class act and, and a man's man he was. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that, but. Um, you know, Kenny was great, sent me to the big leagues. But there was this trading period, and they were, they were going to get somebody from, from Baltimore, um, a lefty from Baltimore. So Bing Devine calls me up and said, you know, we're going to send you down for two weeks. And I go, can I keep my major league salary? And he goes, no. You know, So now I go down. <laughs> now I'm making $800 a month in the minor leagues. And, and my, I was fortunate to make that much money. Um, but the Little Rock team was on – was. They were uh, at home, so I mean, now I have to. I've I've got a wife, in, paying for an apartment in St. Louis. Now I'll go down here. Now the team's not on the road, so I'm going to have to pay something. So um, Bob Forsch and, and Ray Bear uh, were teammates, both pitchers, and um, they said, "Well, go and sleep on our couch, you know, or something like that." But you know, mm-hmm. he was just a, a great individual. Um, his longevity in the game, and you know, I'll go back to the '87 playoffs with with uh, the Giants. If he doesn't knock down Jeffrey Leonard, that that doesn't turn out the way Check that, that turned. Thing. So, hmm. Forshey was, uh, you know, he and his brother Ken, his older brother Ken, you know, the only brother combination to throw no hitters in the big leagues, and and obviously Forshey the only one to author two for the Cardinals. But uh, he really. Um, I think he learned an awful lot from the leadership of those guys that, you know, the Brock, the Gibsons, the Tories, um, some of those guys and everything. And, you know, Dean tennis gets a lot of credit, but, uh, Bob Porsche became really a a big time leader in the ball club, you know, after I left. And, uh, I mean, I I was always amazed with his, with his longevity and his willingness to accept any role. And, And I mean, whether it's starting or, uh, spot starting or, or relieving, or something like that, or even to go send a message to a, a team or a mes- or a, an individual. You know, Bob Worst was one of those guys that was always going to back it up.
3: Joe. Well, as far as yeah. names on my end, I, I think it I would be remiss if I didn't go on the broadcast side because so many of much of Cardinal's Nation knows you as one of the faces of uh, the television, the television our telecast. And you've had the unbelievable opportunity to sit alongside and work with some amazing play-by-play men in the history of the game and you think about Jack Buck and Joe Buck first. I mean that's just incredible there.
1: Well, it's it starts with Jack, yeah. you know, and and I think that any broadcaster um well, you know, even the young guys, you know, cuz I know Danny Mac reveres um, you know, Jack Buck yeah. and everything, but you know, he set the standards. You know, Jack was so generous and so giving to the community, and and uh, there was no better speaker, you know, at a banquet circuit than Jack Buck. He never took the off-season off. Season off did he? Oh,
0: no. What about uh, – I, I, I didn't realize this. Joe brought this to my attention, but some crossover for the Blues fans, and he also did some Cardinal baseball, but, oh, baby, Ken Wilson. You, oh, you yeah. shared a booth with Ken for a little bit? Yeah, yeah um, <sighs> Kenny,
1: Kenny was a phenomenal broadcaster. You know, if you said I need thirty seconds, he could give you thirty seconds of meaningful dialogue. Um, and in hockey, he was outstanding. And I and I said, I mean, how do you do it? He goes, Well, you know, once you learn the names, he goes, the game is the simplest of all games to broadcast. And I go, How can it be? You know, he goes, I said, you know, I listen. To somebody at the time and was, you know, on the air and, and I go, I get confused. And he goes, it's because they fall behind. They try to catch up. He said, if you lose, you know, all of a sudden, if you kind of get jammed like that, you stop and then just pick up the action from that point and go, that makes sense and everything. But, uh, in baseball, he had, he's had a different humor. He really had a different humor and it didn't come across as much in baseball and uh, I think he was very envious of Jack Buck and I remember we started a a telecast Um, we're just doing the open and this was we were doing it live and I brought some mail from Channel 11 you know and there was some mail for, for Ken Wilson I gave it to him and he read a letter and he was really upset about it and the only thing he said is they want Jack Buck I'm going to give him Jack Buck. And so he went on the air, and he was giving me, like, you know, one or two words, and then I was supposed to respond to it. And I was young and everything, and I go, boy, I'm just going to do my job. I'm not going to do anything. Well, he started the game off, you know, batter hits ball. Fielder throws ball first. You know, doing this, you know, that's not Jack Buck. Jack Buck was tremendous and everything, and – I know Dan Farrell had to had to come down. I know they I got they got all the calls. Uh, Tom Mead, the director of my area, said, do not play into this game. Just do what you want what you need to do. Don't, you know, get fall into this trap. And I remember when they came and they said, Kenny, what's wrong? You are you ill or something like that? He goes, oh no, I was just trying something new. And they go, Well, go back to the old Try one. Something <laughs> yes. yeah. And it was just yeah. I mean like I said, he was he was a solid broadcaster and everything. He was great, great in uh, in hockey, but in baseball, there's a much different pace, and there's a lot of lag time. And you know, sometimes the game gets away, and so you've got to, you know, sometimes it, try and entertain. And I mean, I I hate to talk about myself, but there are times when it's easier to start st- uh, storytelling rather than you know saying what, you know, Cardinals are losing 15 to one. Uh, so it's a, there's a time and place. Sport, yeah. Sure.
0: Well, and TV so different than radio too. And I think that maybe it's boring to people who are just yeah, I want to watch the game. But radio, you're describing what's happening. TV, you're doing that if you're the play-by-play guy, but you're, you're kind of augmenting the picture more than giving it And uh, two different mediums for sure. Yeah,
1: you know, in a simple form is, is uh, radio is play-by-play. TV is analytical, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, still you have tremendous broadcasters, and and you mentioned I didn't want to skip Joe Buck, you know, because uh, um, what a talent. I mean, obviously, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, but you know, give Joe a lot of credit. We're in we're in spring training one year, and he told me he said I got to go to uh, LA tomorrow. I'm like, oh, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm gonna do a, you know, a football audition. I go, oh, you've never done football, have you? He goes, no. I said, well, I used. Did you send him a, a tape or anything? And he goes, well, I don't have a tape. You know, I've never <laughs> done a game. And but, you know, um, his mother. You know, she she talked to the CBS people, and at the time, and and uh, you know, we're transferring into into Fox, and and uh, he got it. He, he went to LA. They brought in an analyst. He was supposed to do a, a half of, of a game. And uh, you end up doing the first quarter, and they said, you're hired, and, you know, look at number one baseball broadcaster, number one football broadcaster, you know, he's he's in the Hall of Fame for football now, and he will be in baseball soon. Um, But just a tremendous talent. And uh, I I don't think, you know, whatever Joe Buck wants to do, you know, he's going to accomplish because he's so talented in that way. But um, very proud of, you know, the little time I did have a chance to work with him, and I remember, remember the night his father died, um, we were doing the game. And right before the game, you know, he told me, he said, my dad's gonna die tonight. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, it's time. And I go, well, Joe, get, you know, go. He goes, no, you know, my dad would want me to be here. He'd want me to be with the fans and doing the game. And uh, he goes, they're gonna wait until I get there. And I think so. I mean, what a relationship those two
3: had. Yeah, they're St. Louis through and through, for sure. We're so fortunate. And, you know, the final guy you worked with on the TV side as far as game-by-game game, telecast, he's been doing it for about 25 years. What <laughs> about Danny Mack?
1: Danny is, um, I mean, you know, you, you, I just said Joe Buck was so talented, but, you know, Danny's in that same mm-hmm. same there. No doubt. I think the one thing is, is uh, Joe knows that how good he is. And I think Danny is still searching and won't believe us when we all tell him how good he (laughs) is, Um, you know, very humble, um, you know, South city roots and everything. And you, you know, I mean, great family, man. You just, you're proud and happy with what is he's accomplished, but trust me, you know, whatever he wanted to do from a marketing standpoint, a producing standpoint, he could do it all. And I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times, we'd be sitting there and we'd talk about something and he would, he would throw out these ideas and, and we'd go, you know, why, why aren't we doing this? Why, you know, why aren't they doing those things and everything? But uh, um, he is so, so talented. Um, and he's gonna, you know, I'm gonna sign a, a picture to him. Um, there's a kind of a, a, an artist that goes around and makes these comic book covers, you know, pop fly. And they did one me, and, and he saw it, and, and uh, uh, he goes, oh, "I want one of those." And I'm, I know the way I'm going to uh, scribe it. And I'm going to put on the bottom of it. You know, the best baseball broadcaster not in the Hall
0: of Fame, mm-hmm. but will be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been tremendously impactful on the Cardinals. I think we can all agree, and so have you, sir. So we appreciate you coming in and telling Just us because some I'm an
1: admiral in the Hungarian Navy, you don't have to call <laughs> me sir. I'll
0: know for next time. Perhaps there's a, a repeat visit. Uh, we should let you know that Emily Stevens and Brad Wood produced this episode. Jared Hockup is uh, running our cameras today. If you were watching online, and Tony Simakaitis is our executive producer. I've given him that title right here on the spot. Those guys are all okay. <laughs> they're, they're all pretty good. Joe Pfeiffer, Larry State from our Alumni uh, Relations Department. I'm Brett McMillan for Al Rabosky, the Mad Hungarian. Thanks so much for watching or listening to the Cardinals Insider Podcast today. We'll catch you next time.